What Were They Thinking is brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is a leading provider of shared, reseller, VPS, and dedicated hosting solutions. Award-winning support is available 24-7, 365 days a year via phone, email, and live chat. Discover why over 9 million websites trust HostGator. Use the coupon code SCHLUCK for 25% off your first purchase. That's SCHLUCK, S-C-H-L-O-C-K, for 25% off your first purchase. What Were They Thinking is brought to you today by GameItAll.com. Whether it's video game news, the latest in music, or movie reviews, GameItAll.com is your one-stop shop for all nerdy talk. Oh man, all these wrestling news sites are terrible. What's the matter, young lad? Ah, Mother Superior! No, don't hit me! Uh, I I mean, I I can't find a good wrestling news site. A good wrestling news site? What's... What's so good about a good wrestling news site anyway? Well, I just need a place where I could get all the, the backstage news and rumors and scoop. All right. Don't hit me. I listen. left the orphanage a while ago. All right, listen, Billy's younger brother. I'm not going to hit you this time. Oh, thank you. But I will tell you about a great wrestling news site. Okay. It's, it's, it's not terrible like the last one, right? It's not terrible like the last one. It's called WrestlingNewsWorld.com. You can get all the latest wrestling news, spoilers, results, all the news from all over the wrestling world. That sounds great. No, yeah. it, yes, but you know what? what? It's not going to sound great if you still if you keep up with that mouth of yours. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, again, I left the orphanage a while ago. Uh, if you don't leave, I'm going to tell my parents. I have legal precedent over thirty-seven states. Get back here! No! Oh, stop hitting me! <laughs> WrestlingNewsWorld.com. A boo 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 booch. Two pods. A boo 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 booch. A day. Two pods a day. Two pods a day. Have you signed up for two pods a day? Okay, I lied. You're not going to sign up. But you know what? We're part of a great promotion called Two Pods a Day. And I've mentioned it countless times on the show. But I'm going to mention it again because I fucking can. Uh, you can follow Two Pods a Day on Twitter, on Facebook. And basically, what is Two Pods a Day? Well, thank you for asking. I'll tell you. Two Pods a Day is a promotion uh, during the months of January and February. Uh, February is the current month, of course, for those of you out there who are not in the know. And basically, yeah, so every day of those months, uh, Two Pods a Day introduces you to two different independent podcasts that you may not have found just, you know, browsing around the interwebs. Uh, because we all know the big ones. We're all well aware of the big podcasts with the financial backing and the, the Russian uh, the Russian hacker schemes. I don't think any podcast is like that. But anyway, I digress. Check it out. Follow them on Twitter. Follow them on Facebook. Like them on Facebook. Share the posts. Listen to the podcasts. You might find one that you really, really like. I guarantee you'll find a bunch that you like. So, that is all for me. Now let's get to this very special episode. Oh, Nathan's, Nathan's excited for this one. So excited! Mostly, behind the scenes, guys, we just wrapped this, and now we're doing the introduction, so Nathan already knows what's coming up. <laughs> He's very excited. I was excited even beforehand. Yep. He sure was. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So, you're probably like, what are you talking about? But if you saw the title of this episode, you know what's coming. Uh, we got to interview the director of many a many a film, many a ninja film as well, American Ninja, which we did here on the show. 
uh, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3, uh, Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo, and a very well-known actress in her kind of first role. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we interviewed Sam Furstenberg. <laughs> yes! And that is Nathan's... <laughs> that is what what is left of Nathan's English. Um, so here we go. Check it out. It's coming up right now! Alright, welcome everyone to a very special episode. Uh, I am Brendan. I am Nathan. And we have a very special guest with us here today. He directed many different films. Uh, American Ninja... Uh, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, Avenging Force, Cyborg Cop, tons and tons and tons of movies, worked with Golden Globus, Canon Films, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sam Furstenberg. Hi, everybody. Nice to be with you. (laughs) Well, first of all, I said this before we started recording, but I'll say it again. Thank you very much for joining us here. Absolute pleasure. Yes, I'm a huge, huge fan. Well, you guys are welcome. I always, I, I enjoy to do these interviews. And I always uh, happy to know that there are still fans of uh, the uh, genre B movies of the 80s and the 90s. Oh, and uh, I know there are, but it's always nice to know that there are even more. Oh yeah, the audience is out there. Trust me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. Uh, I, I guess we'll start maybe get a little bit of background information, kind of uh, where it all began, where you kind of got interested in uh, becoming a filmmaker. Uh, listen, I was a kid and I was watching movies uh, through my childhood and uh, boyhood and high school years. I always loved movies. And uh, it was in Jerusalem, in Israel. I saw a lot of movies. We grew up on uh, doses of uh, action movies, westerns, war movies. This is, uh, we are talking about the 50s and the 60s, a lot of westerns. Uh, and uh, then I, uh, I, I served in the army, in the Israeli military. And when I finished, I was 21 years old. This is now 71 or 72. I've decided to go to Hollywood to get involved in studying film. And uh, so I did. <laughs> I came uh, to, to Los Angeles and got uh, myself enrolled in a film school, Columbia College of Hollywood. And I started to learn film. I was lucky enough that uh, even before I graduated, I already started to work with people. Uh, with production companies, with television, uh, all kind of jobs, cameraman, uh, electric, grip, art department, whatever, uh, eventually assistant director in uh, many movies. And uh, when I was uh, 28, about, I, 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 I served in, in, as an assistant director in so many movies. So I, And this was not my goal, of course. I wanted to to be the one who tells the stories, to be the director. So I stopped it, and I came back to Los Angeles for uh, graduate studies at Loyola Marymount University, also in movie making. And wh- while I was in school in Loyola Marymount, this is uh, now 79, 70, 1978, 79, I, um, with friends, I directed, I made a movie. I directed a full feature, full-length movie, uh, which, by the way, uh, Kirstie Alley was <laughs> was discovered in this movie, the actress mm. Kirstie Alley. And uh, then I uh, 
since I knew the producers, uh, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, and I worked with them before as assistant director, and uh, they just bought and the the Canon the Canon Film Company. They bought it and they restarted it as a production company, and uh, uh, they liked the movie that I made in uh, in college. It was the name of the movie is One More Chance. Uh, they took it for distribution and they assigned me to direct another movie, action movie, which was called Revenge of the Ninja. That's <laughs> uh, the beginning of my career as an action movie director, the director of an action movie. Oh, well, and I wanted to, uh, we're obviously lots and lots of uh, movies come after this, but I just want to touch on the, on the Kirstie Alley thing for a second, because this, this movie, One More Chance, uh, we had just read uh, earlier today, actually, that it took about it is I don't know if this is true, but it said that it took eighteen months to film, and you're only able to film on the weekends. Um, what was the kind of strain of continuity and stuff on a on a shoot like that? Well, uh, what you read is correct. Uh, I uh, when I uh, started my un- uh, graduate uh, studies, uh, one of the assignment uh, in the graduate school, film school, is to make a short movie. Let's say twenty five, thirty minutes. Uh, every student or every two or three students together. Uh, I already, since I had so much experience already as assistant director working in features, I've decided that I'm going to make a full feature instead of 30 minutes. Uh, you know, a full-length uh, movie. Uh, I wrote a script. So first it was by the school. It was approved by the school as a 30-minute movie, which is part of the year and a half it should be done through a year and a half when you go to school. But uh, I already decided to make a full feature secret, secretly, and I met uh, uh, one of the students that was willing to become a producer. His name is David Warmark. Since then, he became a, he's a famous producer in Hollywood today. And uh, uh, together, we launched, and, uh, and we convinced the school, the faculty the, of the uh, film department, that it will be a good idea to uh, uh, to make it into a class, and uh, so all the students will have the experience. Uh, you know, I had enough of an experience as assistant director, and uh, but the uh, the thing was that we could shoot only in the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, this is the reason that it took a year and a half to shoot. So uh, every Saturday and Sunday. So during the week, we would plan and uh, you know prepare production. And came Saturday, Sunday, you know, almost every week, not every weekend. And all the people who were involved and other volunteers and the actors uh, will get together and will shoot few scenes or two scenes and continue the next weekend. That's the reason it took such a long time. <laughs> uh, during casting, you know, you mentioned Kirstie Alley, during casting, uh, actors came in. We had a, a one lady who was a casting director, uh, uh, was willing to help us. And one of the people uh, that came to read one of the parts, one of the lead parts was a 
young uh, uh, acting student, uh, Kirsty Alley, and this was her first part in a real movie. Cool. Uh, uh, we wrapped up at the end when we, you know, when we were almost toward the end, so we kind of gathered some money and we shot for one week, full week, or week and a half just to finish everything because it already was too long. And the main actor, Johnny LaMatta, was was willing to be with us, to stay with us for a year and a half. And eventually we just put it together. Of course, then editing, uh, post, post-editing, music, etc., sound. And then the company took it for distribution. And when I say company, I mean Canon Film. <laughs> Okay, well, well, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> See, no, that go ahead. actually leads right into uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that I really wanted to, to talk to you about, um, especially because a lot of your uh, earlier, your canon stuff, uh, not only the nin- uh, American Ninja movies, uh, but also uh, Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja 3, um, a huge parts of uh, some of the first action movies that I really got exposed to as a kid. Um, and the, the, the whole ninja craze was right at that time. And I wanted to kind of ask about working with Golan Globus, uh, the Canon group. Uh, you said you, you knew them um, as well, uh, but I've seen like the the documentary that was uh, was done about them and just what what kind of what was it like working with them because a lot of people have said that it was a lot more by the seat of your pants it was a lot more hands-on as opposed to like boardroom decisions and stuff like that like it, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to be right in the trenches with you guys making these movies uh well uh, uh shortly let me tell you about them uh uh menachem golan uh, and his, uh, Yoram Globus was his cousin, younger, younger than him and cousin. They had the biggest production company in Israel in the 60s, 1960s, 1970s. But they had a dream, and, and they, they produced a lot of movies in Israel, and uh, they had an office in Tel Aviv, uh, uh, production and distribution. But they had a dream to go to Hollywood. They always, always wanted to go to Hollywood. Uh, eventually, they made uh, like one big movie, that uh, Israeli movie, that made good money. The name it was a musical, Casablan, and they sold it to some company in Hollywood for distribution. With the money that uh, they made, they produced a movie in Hollywood with Tony Curtis. The name of the movie was Lepke, gangster movie. It was right after uh, Godfather, so it was fashionable. And uh, this, when I joined them. I, I met them. I was a student in Los Angeles, and I met them. And I worked. I, you know, I was uh, like a general assistant in the movie, and that's where I met with them. Uh, they made two movies here. Uh, another movie, The Four Deuces, with Jack Palance, which I was all, also a general assistant. And then uh, it didn't work out for them. They went, moved back to Israel. Uh, for me, it was a chance. I moved back with them to Israel, and I became an assistant director in many movies that they uh, produce. Eventually, around uh, 1978, uh, uh, they, they produced two movies that made good money. One of them was uh, Operation Thunderbolt, and the other one, Lemon Pepsicle. Those two movies made so much money that uh, they had enough money, and they bought a failing company, a small uh, distribution company from New York, which was called Canon Film. Now, those two 
people that we are mentioning, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, one of them, Menachem Golan, was more, more of the creative person. He was a director. He would direct movies, write script, uh, and de- deal with the uh, uh, creative part of the company. The other one, uh, his cousin, Yoram Globus, was uh, dealing more with the financial side of the company. So he was not really in the trenches. He was always in the, with the banks and the money and mm-hmm. the <laughs> distribution. But Menachem Golan was very involved in writing the script, uh, coming up with the ideas, uh, uh, and in general in creative. Now, of course, this was not a big company. It was not a Disney. It was not Universal. So there, you didn't have all those departments and so many different elements that uh, you have to deal with while you make the movie, like the, the writing department, the financial department, the casting department. It was, as you said before, hand-on. It was all him. And it was a small company. So they were in charge of the casting. They were <laughs> involved in the, in, the, in the writing. I was lucky enough, <laughs> it must be said, that I was lucky enough that they left me alone. They did not bother me. Now, so <laughs> even when we made this first movie, Revenge of the Ninja, so kind of, you know, they sent me away to do it. Uh, the movie was not done in Hollywood. The office was here in Hollywood, and our uh, shooting was in Utah, in Salt Lake City. So occasionally, you know, somebody would come, either because of budgetary reasons or other reasons, but uh, uh, Menachem Golan really got involved uh, when we were uh, doing the editing post-production. Uh, since the movie was kind of a success, they really did not bother me a lot f- during all the movies that I made with them. But your statement is correct. It was a company uh, that was down to earth. People just worked and made, made movies. You know, it was not a company that was dealing with the premieres and parties and uh, and the glitz of Hollywood, but rather the sweat and blood of Hollywood. That's really cool <laughs> to hear because, I mean, a lot of the movies that uh, they did and a lot of the movies that you, you worked with them on, like the, the other Ninja movies and then Breaking 2, with those movies, because you feel like they... they they trusted you, as you said, uh, to make the movie. And uh, because they were a, a lot smaller, do you feel that actually helped enhance the movies to make them uh, more the story that you wanted to portray as opposed to them like them constantly, or, or like say with a, a major movie studio where you hear stories where they're, they're constantly getting in and, and putting their hands on and taking things out from, like, uh, from your, uh, as a director? Correct. Even uh, I, I never had the chance to work for a big studio, but I, I, you know, through the years I've visited big set, set of big store of big movies. A friend of work uh, in big studio movies, and you're right. Uh, they limit the creator, the director, or whatever, because you know they they have their own system and mechanism and machine. Uh, when we are talking about the major studios, and uh, Canon was a smaller company, and they let the uh, the different directors, not only me, you can take Joe Zito, you know, Toby Hooper, they kind of left us alone to do whatever we wanted. But, but, we have to say that there is the stamp of Canon. Canon made certain type of movies. Mm-hmm. So it was not totally freehand. Free uh, only John Cassavetes made a 
you know, he made a movie that was out of the genre of the canon film. <laughs> you know, because he was famous, John Cassavetes. Right. But otherwise, mm-hmm. all of us, we stayed within the type of movies that Canon made. We did. We couldn't veer too much to the right and to the left. But uh, this was, it, it was what it was. This was, and, and today it's recognizable. People call it the Canon look. People are talking about the Canon feel or the Canon look. Well, yeah, because, so, I mean, a yeah, lot... we had to stay with it, with this, within this genre. Yeah, and and a lot of the times, actually, when I'm uh, like even myself now, when I'm watching movies that are like sometimes they'll they might get a beating with from the critics or whatnot in in a movie at the movie theater, but when you watch the movie, it's it it's done with so much gusto that it it, it almost feels like I said before that felt like if this was made in the '80s, it would be a canon movie because it was just it was over the top enough. To grab my attention and keep me entertained, uh, the critics can trash it all they want, but I was entertained. And at the end of the day, that's really the most important part of uh, of the movie going experience. Right. So uh, Menachem Golan, uh, the head of the company, he gave the tone. He was a larger than life person. His personality and his storytelling, uh, the way he his thinking was larger than life, and he gave the tone to the company, you know, uh, he, after all, he approved the scripts. And as, and as I told you guys, he was involved in editing. So uh, everything that you're talking about, you know, this gasto, this larger-than-life type of movies, are the influence of uh, Menachem Golan, he, that was the head of the company, because he dictated the general tone of the type of the movies uh, the character of the movies that Canon will make. Correct. So the rumors of uh, that Canon was going to make a Gone with the Wind remake is not true. <laughs> <laughs> never heard, of, never heard about Gone with the Wind. But you know, they had the right to so to they had the, the right to uh, Superman. They they made it. Yeah. They, yeah. they made one one terrible fa- terribly failed Superman. <laughs> well, there was a, they actually at one point were apparently set to make a Spider Man movie too that didn't materialize. They, they, unfortunately, they right they had the right also for the, to this, but this was toward the end and never came to fruition. Uh, but here and there, they had the rights and they 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 tried they they tried to do the company tried to do some few big movies. I don't know the story about the Gun with the Wind. <laughs> Never had gone with the wind. I, I definitely made that up. <laughs> I see. But, now, yeah, but Superman is, is is true. The the story with Superman is true. And a lot of the <laughs> stuff that you got that you had done, um, I guess it it did play well in theaters. But I mean, you how how much was the um, I guess the home rental market being like a, such a, a burgeoning market at that time? How big was that a factor into the movies and the way you guys made the movies? It was huge. All of, you know, we are talking now about a period that, like, things came together. All the stars aligned, you know. Canon, Canon and other company, Corelco, it was not only Canon, you know, Canon and Corelco, companies outside the, the, the major system, the established system of Universal, Fox, and Warner, and the big ones, they seized an opportunity. They saw an opportunity. The opportunity was the beginning of the home video market. Uh, many of you 
which are a little bit old, older, remember the rental stores all around in every corner, in every mm-hmm. neighborhood there was a rental store. And the studios, the major studios did not pay attention to it. Like in the beginning, the, the big television station did not pay attention to the cable, to the beginning of cable. So the studios did not pay attention to that there is money to make in those renting video cassettes, VHS, <laughs> beta cassettes. But those, the other companies, Canon, Corelco, and those companies, they realize that there is money there. They can make money. And so we made this type of movies, which are, they did not have the budget of uh, major, so they are not considered A movie, but so what we call B movie, lower budget uh, movies, uh, medium budget movies. And uh, they went, many of them went directly to the cassette market, or what they used to call the home rental, the home entertainment market, and that's how they made money. Because they have been, you know, they they sold it to those companies who distributed it, and this went on through the 80s and the beginning, the first part of the of the the first half of the 90s until the, the studios decided, hey, the big major studios decided, they say, oh well, there is money here. Why are they making those kind of movies? Let's us, we will make these movies, and you know, and they took over Schwarzenegger and they took over Stallone, which started with the small companies. And the studio started to make the same movies, but for the big budget, huge movies, uh, you know, True Lies, etc. The, the big movies, but they are the same type of movies with big. So it worked. We were lucky. Everything worked for us. The companies made good money from this uh, home video, but some of the movies here and there, and uh, which will lead us to, let's say, Electric Boogaloo, American Ninja. With, within this low-budget genre, genre, they were good enough that they exploded also theatrically. Uh, yeah, and like, I, I, I would say, that this is just my guess, but uh, with American Ninja, because uh, that was a big one, that was obviously a big one for, for you, uh, would, would you say that was like the biggest budget you had to work with? Uh, no, it was not no? the biggest budget, but it was the biggest moneymaker for okay. all the movies that I've directed. I think I spent, you know, I had a bigger budget in the movie Electric Bo- Breaking to Electric Boogaloo. Mm-hmm. I had uh, even more money when I directed the movie uh, uh, Delta Force Number no. Three, which was almost a big budget movie. Well, and uh, and Breaking to Electric Boogaloo, I guess I want to ask because uh, almost your your whole film, you mostly done action films. Um, and so Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo really stands out for me because it's just kind of that one that's uh, one of these things is not like the other. Um, right. How did that kind of come about uh, to do that that film? So uh, you know, I directed for uh, so Canon was thriving, doing very well, and I was directing one movie after the other. I was just lucky, you know. I made one uh, movie; it was successful, Revenge of the Ninja. Then they handed me another script, another script, uh, and so on and so. On. Uh, one after the other. Even when I directed Revenge of the Ninja, was already a sequel to another movie which was they made, which was Enter the Ninja, which I did not direct. So I'm, I was already in the business of directing sequels, right? Now here, while I was busy, and I, I'm directing the movie Ninja 3, The Domination, Canon, the company, makes a movie called uh, uh, Breakdance, Breaking. And uh, I did not direct another director, Joel Silver, 
huge success. The movie was a huge success. They wanted to um, to make a sequel, and for some reason that uh, I don't know why, beyond my knowledge, the, the original director was not hired to direct the first the sequel. They wanted to make a sequel, and they turned to me really just like this. They turned to me and said, "Well, we have an action movie," and I knew the actress. I knew Lucinda because Lucinda was in uh, in. Uh, uh, Ninja Three, the yeah. Domination, right? <laughs> and uh, I casted her to Ninja Three, the Domination. So I already knew the actress, and they turned to me and said, "What do you think about uh, doing a dance movie in there, <laughs> rather than action?" Uh, and you know, I did not enter this movie business really with the intention to become <laughs> action director, just movie director. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love James Bond. I love uh, westerns, but not necessarily action only. And I do love music and musicals and uh, dance. And so I, I was thinking about it. I figured out, I said, what is, it's, not a, it's really not a big difference. There is not a big difference between action and dance movie because you have a story, you have this, the scene going on, and then you have the numbers, the action numbers, the fight or the, the chase, which are you know, like mini stories within the story. Same thing with the dance movie. The story goes on and then you have a dance which expresses a certain idea in the dramatic development of the story. So, okay, instead of uh, choreographing, you know, dealing with a choreographed fight, now I have to deal with a choreographed dance. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, I thought about it. I said, and I told them, sure, no problem. You no. know, I'll, I'll, do the, I'll do it. You know, the director does not choreograph the fight, and mm -hmm. the director does not choreograph the, the dance. There is a choreographer, dance choreographer, and there is a fight choreographer. And the director interpret it. So my job is to interpret what they do, and I had no problem to do it. That's actually, <laughs> like, uh, with Breaking 2, um, there's a really cool scene in that movie uh, where Turbo is, like, dancing on the walls and the ceilings. And mm. I heard you guys actually built that, that rotating room so they could do that, like, how long would something like that take, like logistically, and like did it cut into the budget a lot? Uh, okay, number one, this is not an original idea. You probably know, film, uh, movie fans would know Fred Astaire did it 30 or 40 years earlier. In a, he danced on the ceiling. Uh, Forget the name of the movie, and uh, and then Menachem Golan. It was not in the original script. While we were shooting, in the middle of shooting, he calls me in uh, and he says, "Wow, I have an idea. Why don't we have this number of cylinders dancing on the walls and the ceiling?" I said, "Okay, no problem." I, I immediately I knew the technical, you know, by logic, I knew how to, how to do it. And, uh, yeah, you're building, uh, the way to do it is to build a room, and a room sits in a, within a mechanism that rotates the room upside down. It's called the gamble. And, and, uh, uh, and all the lights, if, if you have windows in this room, you know, if the room is with no windows, there is no problem at all. But anyway, the lights have to rotate with the room. As the room rotates with it, this big mechanism, drum, it's a huge drum. Imagine a huge drum in, a, in there, and the room is in the middle of this huge drum, and all rotates, every rotate with the lights, together with the lights. And if you have an outside, you see stuff through the window, everything 
that you see through the window have to rotate together. <laughs> and we had we had windows and door, and uh, the preparation, building it. I don't know. Uh, the building was done while I was busy shooting other scenes, so I don't know how long it took to build it. And it was uh, there was one set which was regular set of the same room which was not rotating, and another one a duplicate rotating. So the two similar sets, duplicate. And uh, 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 we did the dance in one day. Wow, cool. But, but uh, you know, they, the people, the mechanical people, the, the, there was a special crew just building it. It was not, the, we didn't take our crew from, subtract from the movie crew. The, uh, a special crew was hired to make carpenters, I don't know, metal people, whoever. <laughs> can do it, was hired to build this mechanism and room and we had to hire a special cameraman and I'll explain why because when the room rotates with the light also the cameraman who is uh, attached to the floor, when the room rotates and the ceiling becomes the floor the cameraman is upside down so the best, the best cameramen to do it are, are aerial cameramen who are not getting disoriented when they are moving from side to side, you know, suddenly they're upside down and suddenly they're upside right, or suddenly they're on the side. So aerial cameramen have this sense of not losing the direction where they are at any moment in the rotation. <laughs> I, I love I love the idea. I love this idea of uh, approaching approaching you and be like, you know what, I think we need to add a scene with this giant set. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This was crazy, I, and I'll, I'll explain why this movie was crazy. The movie was crazy, not. And just by the way, just to explain, the dancer always dance on the floor. For him, from a dancing point of view, he dances on the floor, and the room moves around. So when the ceiling becomes floor, you know, physical floor, he's still dancing on the ceiling, but the ceiling is horizontal, with us on the real world. Mm -hmm. And we added one twist. We had the girlfriend coming in. When he's on the ceiling, she comes on the floor. But in reality, she was on the ceiling and he was on the floor. <laughs> Everything was upside down. And she was attached to the, to the ceiling. <laughs> uh, I, I'll explain you. The movie, the, the first movie, uh, Breaking Law, was a good success. was a big success. MGM uh, 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 distributed it. And then Canon wanted to do a sequel, uh, Breaking 2, and they came up with the name Electric Boogaloo, attached to it in 2, Electric Boogaloo. And they pre-sold the movie to another big company, TriStar. TriStar was a Columbia. It was a subsidiary of Columbia Pictures. So suddenly, when we are, we are now making a movie, and it's already sold to a big distribution company that really want to open it big in the summer or something. So that's why the company, the Canon company, was really trying hard, and they didn't mind pouring money to this. Uh, this was a nine-week nine shoot. It was pretty big movie, not as big as a studio, major studio movie, but not, you know, we can call it a medium budget, five and a half million in the, in the 80s. It's a lot of money, a five and a half, six million dollar, and nine weeks of shooting with two units. It's pretty big movie. There, there, are one, there is one scene with 3,000 extras in the street. Wow. So it was not as, that's why things were added. There are scenes which are not in the final editing 
the, the production was pretty big, so there were a few scenes we cut out in the editing because they didn't, they were not to the our liking or to the level that we felt that it needed to be. <laughs> and indeed, it's a big success, theatrical and uh, cultural and theatrical. Yeah, it definitely has a place in in pop culture. I mean. Uh, I don't know, famous or infamy, one way or the other, but yeah, it it is definitely synonymous, like kind of with the, the '80s, and definitely with canon. Uh, so much so that the just the, the subtitle "Electric Boogaloo" gets kind of gets kind of referenced um, as far as like sequels that that come along for a movie. You're like, I didn't think they'd ever make it, but here it is. You know, uh, scary movie too, "Electric Boogaloo." <laughs> <laughs> Now, you, yes, you're right. You're right. <laughs> it just happened. With the, uh, I mean, with the earlier, again, with the ninja movies. I mean, you worked with um, two of my favorite, like genre guys uh, from uh, from those movies uh, in uh, Sho Kashugi and uh, Michael Dudikoff. Um, nice. What was it like working with with those guys? Just because I've I've never heard too too much about. Shokashugi and how he is as like someone to work with, and I've heard up and down things about uh, Michael Dudikoff. So I mean, uh, you clearly worked with him a lot. So I mean, he's he's obviously a, a nice enough guy to to say I want to keep working with him. Yes, they they were uh, uh, two different uh, type of people, of course, and uh, Shokashugi, I inherited him. <laughs> His story was uh, the when Canon made the movie uh, Enter the Ninja, he was the villain. Mm -hmm. uh, the choreographer of the was Mike Stone. Mike Stone himself, uh, champion in some karate, and he brought he brought in uh, Shokasugi uh, to be the villain of the in the movie. Sho grew up in Japan and. Uh, through his childhood and through the year, he went through all kind of training of martial art, and part of it, he had a lot of knowledge about uh, with the ninjutsu, with the art of ninjutsu. Uh, his style was, um, I think, it's one of, uh, and he was already a master. He was already a master with students, with a uh, uh, few schools of teaching, and uh, he decided to move from Japan to, he wanted to become Jackie you know, <laughs> uh, one of the stars at the time in the 70s and the 80s, there were a lot of Hong Kong martial art movies, Chinese martial art movies, and he wanted to be one of them. And he of them, and he moved from Japan to Los Angeles, and um, was looking for his luck. And somehow he landed this part of uh, uh, the villain in Enter the Ninja. And so when they they he was very impressive because he knew the stuff. He was the real thing, you know. He was a, a master, uh, black belt, and etc. He really was good. And uh, they were so impressed with him that they decided to build the sequel, Revenge of the Ninja, around him as a hero. Huh. So when I came in, when I was asked to direct the movie, he was already attached. It had nothing to do with it. And uh, I did not, I didn't know much about martial art movies. My my knowledge was more of a samurai movies, a Japanese samurai movies, Akira Kurosawa movies. I did not, I was not familiar with the Hong Kong style of 
to call what they used to call at the time kung fu movies. And uh, Shaw realized that I, I don't know, and he, let's say, took me under his wing to, to teach me, to show me. And he showed me a lot of those Hong Kong movies, uh, martial arts movies of Hong Kong, and uh, gave me the basics, uh, knowledge about ninjutsu, ninja, recommended the books that I should read, uh, all the different weapons. Uh, now, when we, during the filming, he was the choreographer of the fights. So he, and he had a bunch of, a group of students, of his students who came, who came with him. And uh, Tensei, he was the master. And they performed the different, they were doubling whenever we needed action doubles from the different, sorry, characters and actors. He used the pool of his people. He choreographed the fights. And, uh, and of course, he performed his part. He did not, he didn't need a double. He was the hero of the movie. No double. He, he did everything by himself except some, some, complicated flips that you don't usually you don't want to uh, put your main actor in jeopardy and uh, and the thing about him I must say that he was like a ballet dancer really uh, I, I enjoyed so much just sitting back on my chair on the director chair and watching the way he performs and the way he does the stuff and uh, so this was the way to work with him but uh, he was Japanese, he came from Japan, and there was a certain cultural uh, code of, uh, and he came from Japan and, and from the world of martial art, which I was not, I'm not, you know, not familiar with the Japanese culture or the martial art culture. So there was, a, there is a code and, and the way and, and, and ways of behavior. Uh, so he kept this level among him and his students and we had to i had to adjust a little bit to to come toward him with the cultural uh, the, to accommodate his cultural and his his status in the martial art but in the other hand i must admit that he agreed with me and it was easy to pull him toward the western so to speak kind of action movies which i wanted to make i i did not I didn't want to make a Hong Kong Kung Fu movie. I wanted to make a James Bond movie, right? <laughs> so, and and the the final result of Revenge of the Ninja is a mixture of martial art and what we call straight action. You know, he came our way. I bended his way, and and as I say, it was really pleasure to do and work with him. Michael Dudikoff does not have this kind of huge background in martial art you know he probably took some classes like many american kids at the time and he knew basic but we had on the set uh, uh mike stone uh, mike stone was a martial artist uh, a champion of uh, judo one of the styles uh, the american champion just like chuck norris and uh, mike stone was the personal trainer of elvis presley so he was on the set all the time, and he guided Michael into the martial art. Now, now Michael Dudikoff is very athletic to begin with, you know, no problem to ask him to do anything. Uh, was, of course, obviously, he was 
more Western-oriented than Shokasugi in the term of the type of movie that he wanted to make and the type of hero he wanted to be. Uh, was not cons- concerned about purity of martial art as much as Kasugi, but rather let's let's make a good action movie. <laughs> and uh, so the, it reflects itself in the character. And uh, but there was very, Michael did a lot, a most of his the stuff that he had to do by himself. Here and there, uh, somebody would double him. Uh, for some dangerous stuff or some specific moves or on the fight, uh, etc. But he did most of the stuff by himself uh, and very athletic. And uh, both of them were very enthusiastic uh, people about movie making. You know, both of them, Shokasugi, Michael, very enthusiastic about movie making and and action action movies so it was easy and nice to to work with them uh shokasugi moved back to japan i believe he lives now in japan so there is no contact with him uh, michael dudikov lives not far from me so we are in contact uh, occasionally <laughs> we kept uh, uh friends we are friends and we see each other once in a while talk cool. that's where it stands <laughs> Well, that's cool because you, like like Nathan was saying, you worked with uh, Michael a lot, so it's good to see. So you still kind of maintain that uh, that friendship, that relationship to this day. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Now, with that, I mean, well, uh, you know, Michael was. Uh, uh, it's very difficult uh, in in the movie business to determine ahead of time who will have this charisma, who has this what's called screen presence. And not every actor has this this magical secret uh, ingredient that makes him a star <laughs> with a with a tremendous uh, screen presence, charisma on the screen. Michael had it right away. I saw it the minute I saw him. The minute he came, he walked in. He already made one movie before. Um, uh, uh, American Ninja. He was in a movie uh, uh, by Albert Payun that all, was also a director in Canon. Albert, Electroactive Dreams. Uh, and and he was on television series before that and uh, even in the movie Bachelor Party, the small part with Tom Hanks. But uh, he came in to audition for American Ninja and uh, I, I kind of felt it, you know, when I liked him, we did some tests, some video tests, and uh, we, we felt it immediately. It was Michael is a guy with a screen presence, uh, star quality, so. and then very hard to to define why why he is. So, but he is. <laughs> now you like with with I guess with Michael uh, Dudikoff, and also another name that actually pops up a lot in your. Uh, uh, I guess the list of uh, movies that you've done is uh, uh, David Bradley. Now, have you like with with guys like him and with uh, with Michael Dudikoff and uh, I guess even Steve James to an extent because he was you know he was in uh, just about I think just about all the American Ninja movies. Um, do you find that you like to pull in guys like that again and again um, instead of like venturing out to try to find? another face or is it more of a situation where the studio says we've worked with him before we want to keep working with him we think he's going to be the next big thing uh, 
your less your latest statement is more correct. You know, when <laughs> when a studio, when a company, they see that you are doing good with somebody. So they did well with Michael Dudikoff. You know, the ticket sell the the tickets are selling, and it's easy. They sell the movies to foreign companies. When I say foreign companies, I mean distribution companies in Germany, Japan, etc., in other countries. The buyers, what we call the buyers, they demand, and companies say, "Oh, it, it went well with Michael Dudikoff, and he's good on the screen. Uh, let's make another movie with him." So many times, it's the, who the, who will be the star of a movie is dictated by the company. They don't really care about the other parts, and the director is free to do whatever he wants. But they would uh, sometimes they have demand regarding to who will be the star. And that's how they, uh, those movies are sold. They sold, you know, movie uh, motion picture movies are the medium of the stars. That's how movies are being sold. Audiences in general don't really care, uh, you know, who is the art director, and they don't care who is the director, but they know that this is a movie with Meryl Streep or Jean-Luc Van Damme. That's how <laughs> movies are sold. So I would love uh, to see a Jean-Claude Van Damme Meryl Streep movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But, but uh, yes. They are detected. So Michael was hi- was eventually hired by Canon Film, and he worked for them a lot. And and later on, uh, David Bradley started with uh, Canon, but Canon faded, went into bankruptcy, and uh, New Image. Uh, I started to make movies for New Image, another company which was the same mold of Canon. And uh, David came with us and continued with New Image. And uh, we mentioned Van Damme. Van Damme started with Canon, but uh, somehow he he worked up his way into the studio system, uh, made uh, to a few few Universal movies. Um, uh, so yes, uh, and 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 it's easier if the same kind. Of, if it is the same kind of movie, if you make American Ninja number two, why not use the American Ninja? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. If you make Cyber Cup and, and then Cyber Cup number two, why don't David Bradley again? He's already the, uh, you know, the truth is that uh, uh, the major studios are doing the same thing. Uh, when they make a sequel, they try to, to use the same actor. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, there was another thing. Oh, I had a good I... relationship with those guys, so no reason, you know, I didn't have any fighting or bad, bad, bad relationship with them or some. I I I, I was friend with David Bradley, friend with uh, Michael Dudikoff. So why not? We had a good time. Um, now there was another movie. Uh, now, Nathan, you got to help me out. What the name of that again? Sorry. Um, I'm just getting it right here. One second. It would. It's definitely the kind of another one of those situations where it's uh, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, the interplanetary surplus male and Amazon women of outer space. <coughs> yeah, long title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you guys. It's a, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's an. It's an interesting story. I was approached by a friend who wanted to produce a movie. Uh, uh, sci-fi and uh, he came to me with a script and I read the script and the sci-fi, the, this, this script all the, the whole script had this uh, feel 
of the sci-fi movies of the 40s, of the, the strange movies of the 40s and the early 50s, uh, Women's uh, on the Moon. Uh, it, it was a series of movies at the time in the 40s and in the 50s, which were the B-movies playing in the double ticket, the second movie. And they all had, the, they were all low budget with, the, with, the, the, with laser guns and with robots and with the strange flying sorcerers. It was a genre that, at the time. Uh, and and the, the, the scripts had the same feeling. And he wanted me to direct. And I said, listen, his name was Elliot, the director, the producer. I said, Elliot. It's not, uh, you know, we are now in the, uh, at the end of the 90s or the 2000s already, and they say, you cannot sell a movie like this nowadays. It's, it's, but if we make a parody, if we try to make some fun of this kind of movies, of this particular genre of sci-fi, of the low-budget sci-fi, I will be glad to, to get involved. And so we did. So he agreed, and uh, we changed the script a little bit, and we took it into the little bit in uh, uh, making parody, making fun, a little bit uh, comical. And that's how this movie came to light, and that's how we made this movie. It's a very low-budget movie, so uh, you know, I never saw any big distribution or any big uh, success. But it's, uh, it's pretty funny, funny in a ridiculous way. <laughs> <laughs> in a parodical way, make make fun of those movies, uh, the sci-fi movies of the 40s, okay, uh, and the 50s. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, I just want to uh, before before we kind of wrap up here. Um, I now I don't know. I I, ch I saw this on IMDb, so I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. But it looks like uh, you have something coming up, or that you're producing uh, this year. Is that correct? Listen. Beside you, somebody else told me the same story. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm not involved. No, no, I'm not involved. No. Right. There is, okay. there is, a, there is a, a group of people, and I, I believe they acquired the name of the, the title of the company, Canon Film. I believe so. I'm not that involved. Oh. And uh, they want to produce a, uh, a, another breakdance movie, and I was approached by, or it's already two or three or even f four years ago, if I don't mind to to lend my name as a producer, but I am not involved and I'm not actively involved. I don't even know if it will ever happen. I've actually Hopefully heard the, of these it will, it will. But, <laughs> but somebody else told me that my name is attached to, as a producer to some movies, but I never produced before in, in my life. I was never... Uh, involved in production through this whole uh, my movie career, which some 30, 40 years I always directed only. <laughs> and here and there I was involved in writing, but never in producing, never. I don't yeah, have that's... the skills that it takes to produce a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's interesting because, different. yeah, there are very few details on it as well, so that's why I was like kind of hesitant if, that, if it was accurate or not. Um, I don't know much about it. <laughs> it's actually, it's been a really big, uh, a, a huge honor uh, to be able to talk to you uh, about these movies and stuff because um, I, I know I did my best not to gush too much during the uh, the interview stuff, but uh, a lot of the stuff that you did, uh, especially in like the, the canon films, the American Ninja movies, the Ninja movies, um, I, as a kid, they were some of the... Uh, 
the first exposures of action movies uh, for me. And a lot of times my dad, because he was a big, he's a big fan of action movies. So a, a lot of the stuff uh, that you, you did, you directed with, uh, uh, canon uh, was actually the kind of movies that I would often watch with my dad and would really they, they've actually they kind of help I guess make us uh, closer as I as I grew up I'm not saying this like he's dead he's still very much alive but I do want to say thank you so much for all the like the movies that you made because again they were a huge part of my uh, movie going experience as a kid because home rentals were the way to go for us we did not get a chance to go out to the theaters a lot so movies like yours uh, were a, a lot of time was was some really good quality time for me and my dad. I'm happy to hear what you're saying, and and let me tell you, the movies that I have directed for Canon, action movies, they were always had this kind of intention that they will play for Yankee. The violence is not too much violent. It's not too much realistic. It has this feeling, at least it was my intention, to have this feeling of a comic book. You know, so it's, it is action, but it is violent, but it's not really violence, you know. Mm -hmm. So the young, you know that it's, it's a movie violence. It's a movie fantasy. So it will be appropriate for, you know, teenagers as well as uh, <laughs> other men, uh, action lovers, but it's not too painful yeah. <laughs> to, to watch them. And, and they have some fun and innocence in them. And uh, well, I, I'm happy to hear that it worked for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I will, <laughs> I will say, I will say. I know that for others because I get a lot of fan mails. It, it did. Uh, it did. They, they did get my brother and I in a little trouble every once in a while because you know when you when you see ninjas, you want to play ninjas, and uh, well, a few things got broken, uh, a few bloody noses here and there, but you know we were better for it. I think. <laughs> so well, again, and thank you very much. Yeah, like, uh, I do want to stress again, thank you very much for joining us here. Um, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, welcome, and it was also awesome for me. I enjoyed it very much. What were they thinking? Holy frickin' poop, you guys. Oh, my God, I got to talk to Sam Furstenberg, the director of American Ninja and American Ninja 2, Ninja 3, The Domination. <laughs> And Revenge of the Ninja and Bring it to Electric Boogaloo. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! I was hoping you were going to say that really long title really fast, too. <sighs> I haven't seen that, so but I'm sure I'll be a big fan <laughs> when I do get to see it. But yeah, that was awesome. So uh, cool. Oh my god. Fantastic. Fantastic guy. What Lots a guy. of story. Oh man. What a friggin' gentleman. Mm. Uh, very nice guy. Uh, yeah, again, more of these coming, guys. We're working on them. We're going to get some cool peeps. Yes. Um, and Nathan is, uh, Nathan's freaking out. I, I'm on uh, cloud nine all day. That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> this, this was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, we want we thanked him already, but we're going to thank him again. It was really awesome that he, uh, agreed to do this. Yep. We should probably talk about what our movie is next week. Oh, we should, I suppose. So, uh, take a listen. Here's the trailer. On a beautiful lake, in a quiet town. Dad, who's working? Probably some ancient Indian myth. He's a slimy wart-covered serpent who feeds on the bodies of prepubescent female children. Josh, 
what she knows in her heart. They're killing him by putting toxins in the lake. Are you sick? Take the explosives and rig the dump site. Josh, we can't let him do this. Every child who still believes, and for everyone else who has forgotten how. There's nothing I'd like more than to see things the way you do. There's magic in the water, where the legend ends and the adventure begins. Yesum, it's the Canadian classic, Magic in the Water. You know, you gave your hint last week, and it yes, was it, it was NES. Yeah, it it wasn't about the Super Nintendo or the Nintendo Entertainment System. And no. most technically, this movie is not about uh, the Loch Ness monster, uh, as it is Canadian and uh, I believe set in Canada. Uh, it would be about the Ogopogo. I mean, it's basically the Loch Ness monster. No, it's not. Uh, the reason why the Loch Ness monster uh, is called the Loch Ness monster because it is in Loch Ness. Hmm. In in Halifax, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, magic in the water. Uh, I, I don't want to say much about it. It's pretty strange and uh, it's pretty wonderful. So okay. <laughs> uh, blame Big Dick McGee for this one. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Mariah picked this one uh, for us, so we want to thank her. And I think she might even show up. Oh, so. really? that'd be kind of fun. Just a, just, uh, just a heads up. Patty wanted nothing to do with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's understandable it's, yeah i get where she's coming from <laughs> but yeah um yeah so magic in the water next week get ready folks check it out uh i don't know if you can find it anywhere actually i think no i don't even think you can find it on youtube um You'd probably be able to oh, rent well. it on youtube i think it was released by it got a, a, at least a somewhat of a studio release i mean it made it to vhs it, it was theatrically it was theatrically released Okay, it probably won't be too too hard to track down. You might have to spend, uh, you know, three ninety nine to rent it on YouTube if you want to watch it. But you know, there it is. Yeah. You can do that, or you could just listen to us talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's going to be all. Um, man, I don't think our our ending would apply to what we've just done because this that was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know what to say. What do you want to say? Oh, uh, I, oh, I. Tongue-tied. I'm uh, still getting over this. I can't even word right now. <laughs> what What am I thinking? Hi, I'm Ellen, and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn. 
And I'm bad at ad-libbing. <laughs> and you're listening to High Expectations, the promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay, please subscribe. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Noelle Heil, the host and creator of Heil on Life, the podcast where I talk one-on-one with people who inspire me. My guests come from all walks of life, different jobs and careers, and they all have different motivations that have helped them throughout their lives. I find their stories fascinating and hope that you will too. To learn more, find me on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, Tumblr, and Libsyn. And remember, we may have similar stories, but our journeys are all our own. Hi, I'm Phil. Oh. Did someone just did someone just sign off of AOL? I'm Paul. I really don't have a lot on this. Oh my god, this is this is rolling off the rails real quick. And I'm Dennis. I, I am so guys. mixed up today, just don't even listen to me anymore. And together we are Voltron. Well, no, not Voltron. We are useless debates in pop culture, a weekly or we at least try to be podcast that allows you to pick the winner. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. By no means, the a internet lamp. strikes again. Yeah, for sure. We will debate anything. So, if you want to hear debates on such useless topics as best Val Kilmer role, Ooh, Tombstone, Tombstone, or best movie soundtrack, American Graffiti, or the most successful former boy band member, JT, then tune into our show. Your podcast is so well named. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, Podbean, and Google Play. And our website, uselessdebate.com. All right, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>